Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I welcome on the Saspot Anuradha Bhasin, executive editor of the Kashmir Times and currently a JSK journalism fellow at Stanford. Anuradha, it's such a privilege to talk to you today. How are you? Thank you so much uh, for inviting me here. I'm 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 good. Great. Okay. Well, um, I look forward to talking to you about the newspaper. As I understand it, the Kashmir Times is essentially a family newspaper. It was started by your father in 1954, and now you are the executive editor. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the paper and also, um, if you wouldn't mind, context contextualize its position within the larger domain of media in both Kashmir and India? Yes, when the newspaper started in 1954, uh, there were many, many challenges right from its inception. It was, in fact, banned even before it uh, started. And one also needs to look, see it in the backdrop of what was happening within the subcontinent at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1947, India was um, got its independence and it was partitioned. Mm -hmm. So the Indian democratic experience was pretty new mm -hmm. um, in 1954. And that also threw up, you know, whereas... Uh, India opted for democracy, a liberal democracy, and had a robust constitution. There were gaps uh, between uh, what the constitution said and how it was implemented. Mm -hmm. So there were problems there. Uh, with um, There were many challenges that media within India had to face, and particularly in Kashmir. Um, Kashmir had a peculiar and a complex history. There was a burden of an unresolved conflict that started in 1947. And this was essentially political, but there was also a religious link to it. Mm -hmm. um, in India and Pakistan, two big powers uh, that had emerged from that independent moment of independence. Mm -hmm. They uh, were both vying for Kashmir and they had uh, fought uh, they were fighting wars or the borders were hostile. But even within uh, Kashmir, which is actually Jammu and Kashmir, the challenge there were challenges of internal complexity. Uh, Jammu and Kashmir is a complex area. It's uh, diverse. It's regionally diverse. It is uh, ethnically, religiously diverse. So while there were separatist sentiment, it was not a, a word, there was also the Hindu right wing. And uh, these continued to uh, 
play a role in uh, enhancing and exacerbating the challenges. Mm -hmm. um, I recall in 1983, my uh, father faced a murderous assault by the Hindu right wing mm -hmm. and he survived. So the challenges were from physical to uh, existential. Um, and, and that continued till uh, insurgency started in 1989. That was, that worsened things uh, because journalists were suddenly caught between the gun of the armed rebels, um, locally called militants, and the security forces, sometimes also between the warring militant groups who were fighting each other. And in the Hindu majority area in Jammu from mm -hmm. the Hindu right wing vigilante groups. So this was also interestingly the time that I had joined the organization in 1989. So wow. my career coincided <laughs> with uh, the start of the insurgency. So it has been a constant learning process, constant process to struggle to perform, to perform better and to at the same time sustain physically and professionally. Um, and this was a huge challenge because about 20 journalists have been killed in the last 30 years. This is a huge number for the size of the media there. Many were jailed, tortured or threatened into silence or harassed in other ways. I'm so sorry. It sounds uh, it sounds overwhelming, and that this kind of started with the the coincided with the start of your career. I have so many questions about the history of Kashmir, and I think many of many, if not most, of our listeners will will know Kashmir as a a site of com conflict, a site with a complicated history. But can you just say can you say a little bit more, kind of zooming out, maybe an, an overview of what's happening and then what what happened in 1989 um yes to summarize things i mean uh, i mean it's hard I, I I to, yes i know i know it is <laughs> it's, it's about more than 70 years of history and then there yeah. would be a baggage of history even before that of but course. then to yeah to just simplify things and say uh, you know, when India was being partitioned, so like all other, uh, Jammu and Kashmir was a Muslim majority state ruled by a Hindu uh, monarch. Mm -hmm. And like all other princely states, which were about more than 500, uh, Jammu and Kashmir was given the option to accede. And accession uh, was signed by the monarch only after the tribals backed by Pakistan invaded mm -hmm. the borders. And it was a conditional accession, uh, giving India the power over defense, foreign affairs and communication. So it was slightly different from the, ex the other accessions. Um, and um, in 1947-48, thus India and Pakistan were drawn into a war, the first, their first war, which was over Kashmir and in Kashmir. Right. And uh, finally, when the war ended, it left the state of uh, Kashmir divided into two dominions, each administered by India and Pakistan. Since then, it has been a bone of contention between the two powers. Uh, there are pending UN resolutions that call upon both sides to ascertain the will of the people after a process of demilitarization. And neither side, both, both blame each other, but neither side has fulfilled these obligations. And uh, at least India says the resolutions are no longer relevant. 
so and and all this while during the seven decades to maintain hold over the region they've mm. both pumped in military spent enormous amounts on building intelligence networks and controlling the politics of the land and disempowering the people mm. uh, when alienation on the indian side was increasing uh, in the 80s uh, leading to unrest within. Um, at that time, Pakistan leveraged its position as a strong ally of the U.S. Uh, in, in pushing out Soviet Union from Afghanistan yeah. and diverted those funds and arms to Kashmiri youth mm. who were already desperate to wage a war against the Indian state because of the internal situation created within. Mm. And so the conflict exacerbated and uh, insurgency started. The militarization of Kashmir's landscape increased massively. In fact, Kashmir is said to be one of the most militarized uh, regions in the world. And since then, we've seen many phases of the conflict, the highs and lows of the insurgency. We've moved from insurgency to street protests to a silent uh, mode of resistance. Mm -hmm. And in between, there was a brief period of re uh, respite between 2002 and 2006, which mm -hmm. was also a period of hope when a peace process was initiated by India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, Kashmiris saw this as an opportunity to be included in negotiations. Right. Unfortunately, it did not last. And when it did not last, it kind of backfired. And um, insurgency from insurgency, we moved to street protests. Right. Okay, thank you. Um, we know it's complicated, but um, I'm sure not many people are as well placed as you are to give this um, kind of simplistic overview. And I know that I'm sure there are many things you you had to leave out in the in the interest of time and the conversation that we're having. 2019 is a is a date that I mean things of course changed, but presumably in Kashmir as well as the rest of India with the first Modi government in um, 2000. 14. Um, but then 2019, things came to a head, as I understand them, and uh, that resulted in the internet shutdown, which I think many of us are aware of, because it was such a, a landmark moment. But there were many challenges for the media even before that time. Can you can you speak to those and then how things were worsened or impacted by the shutdown? Yeah, to broadly begin from, you know, the time that uh, insurgency started, mm -hmm. it was difficult for uh, media to perform because there were massive restrictions all the time. There was massive mobilization of troops. There were different militant groups. And with that, all the physical, all the physical threats that came into being, there were curfews in place, debilitating news gathering. Uh, but, you know, despite all these restrictions and despite all the physical threats, uh, there were channels of communication open with the government, sometimes also with militants. Mm -hmm. um, Indian democracy had been observed in breach in JNK uh, through the decades, but the Indian constitution was a protecting shield. Right. And the government institutions were somewhat responsive. Mm -hmm. to the needs of the journalists, the channels of communication were open. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and which seemed to have uh, now broken down. But uh, it, it gradually started, you know, when the peace process started uh, stumbling and it stopped. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, thereafter, uh, the political dispensations within India and in Jammu and Kashmir began hardening their positions um and with with respect to uh, pakistan or with respect to a uh, people's resistance and um, it also um became a war of between india and pakistan of which side gets to control and manipulate kashmir and the kashmir's narrative more mm -hmm. so a lot of um, you know media faced harassment in different forms more uh, subtle forms but the acts obviously did fall on the media the methods of targeting increased but they became more subtle mm. and they were employed by squeezing revenues of news organizations uh, which uh, were already relying on outdated maybe flawed revenue models which were reliant on government advertising and subsidies um, other than that, uh, journalists and news organizations were harassed by frivolous and fabricated income tax uh, cases, money laundering cases, you know, so that they are compelled to toe the government line. Mm. But um, so by the time that 2019 Internet shutdown happened, mm -hmm. Independent and professional media in Kashmir had already been weakened. Right. Um, it was already weak. Right. And at by that time, India was also ruled by the Hindu right-wing mm -hmm. government, which had a different ideology and a different vision of dealing with Kashmir. Uh, so um, in 2019, when they changed the special state status of uh, Kashmir, uh, there was an attempt to mercilessly, but almost bloodlessly, control the media through a complete communication blockade with a chilling effect. Mm. Um, there was complete internet shutdown, mobile phones were off, mm. and um, within a few days, journalists were uh, offered, you know, a government set up media facilitation center with slow speed internet and just about three to four computers for about 100 to 200 journalists working there, including some who were flying from outside to report on the situation. Um, more problematically, they were working under complete surveillance. Mm -hmm. uh, these were government set up uh, centers, the government computers, and they had complete right. overall view of what uh, you were doing as journalists yeah. and when you do that for prolonged periods you know the complete internet shutdown existed for another six months mm -hmm. so it, this has a psychologically demoralizing impact on the journalists mm -hmm. and the kind of fear that it induces it becomes all pervasive mm -hmm. and then thereafter the control of the media becomes easier mm -hmm. um, so to go on uh, when internet began to be restored, the government introduced more methods to compel journalists to toe the line mm -hmm. of the government or become silent. Um, you know, this they did by 
um, the police uh, giving oral summons to the journalists, which had no legal validity, but the journalists nonetheless in an atmosphere of fear right. had to go and face the questioning and uh, maybe sometimes harassment, mm -hmm. uh, threats, uh, criminal charges were slapped on journalists, mm -hmm. uh, some were arrested. Uh, there were raids on um, several organizations and journalists on several pretexts, you know, sometimes income tax, sometimes uh, terror charges. Mm -hmm. And in June 2020, the government introduced a media policy, uh, which allowed a bureaucrat to have arbitrary powers to scrutinize news content, to decide what is fake mm. and anti-national and take punitive action um, to decide which journalist or organization is to be empaneled and which is to be disempaneled. The policy specified that document, that the goal was to ensure that media focus on the positive attributes of the government and project a positive narrative. And now this is not the job of the media. Media's job is primarily to highlight the failures and the shortcomings of the government and to bring in unheard, marginalized voices right. in a big bid to bring uh, information in the public space and thus strengthen democracy. Yeah. The government, on the other hand, wants to convert journalists and news organizations into a publicity relations wing of the government. Yeah. And as a result of this, while publications continue to operate, while reporters continue to report, um, many of them have either just become jarring mouthpieces of the government, yeah. or if they want to be uh, seen as more professional, they are more silent about major issues that the public is facing. Um, now, what is happening in Kashmir is worrying because it's also being extended into mainland India. Right. And Kashmir, we, because it's been uh, successful for the government, the experiment, it mm -hmm. has become, uh, we feel, a testing laboratory for rest of India. Yeah. Um, I'm, I have a few questions based on what you just said. Thank you for that um, kind of long account and... and um... Uh, it's so disturbing. Um, I want to ask you about fake news. But before I go there, I just want to ask you about social media, because uh, we just had the, uh, I think, takeover is the correct word of Twitter uh, by Elon <laughs> Musk. Um, but 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 do you have more freedom on social media? or Is that equally controlled? And I don't know at this point whether social media actually is a tool of democracy. I don't know. I, I think it was it maybe once was, but maybe never. I don't know. But was that helpful to you? Or was that also controlled? Um, you know, while social media is in some ways very empowering, but at the same time, while social media platforms have their own ways of deciding what is fake news and what right. they are going to take off, um, in, in countries like uh, India, which are, uh, you know, transforming from democracy to authoritarian um, or autocratic powers, mm -hmm. uh, there is a tendency that uh, the social media platforms, which are driven by their own business uh, agendas, to um, often play into the hands of the government. Right. Um, and and uh, 
So, so it's always, there's a certain kind of bias that is they're guided by in the kind of, um, uh, you know, handles that they will de-platform or the content they, they, they will remove and the kind of content they will amplify. Right. Um, and, and, and that's pretty problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also the point that I think Twitter is not actually, although the numbers, of course, are always large in South Asia in terms of percentage. Twitter is not that big. It's really WhatsApp is where it where, yes. where it happens. WhatsApp is. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about fake news. I mean, I think for us in the United States that um I don't know if Trump coined the phrase, but I certainly associated with him and the way I see it, the real populist mistrust of the media came with uh, or were definitely strongly reinforced by Trump's continued attacks on the journalistic integrity on journalistic integrity and then this continuous um, kind of theme of quote-unquote fake news is there a correlation between Trumpism and and the way the media is viewed in India or or is it like a sidebar you know, Trump didn't start the trend. The impact of uh, how the authorities attack journalist integrity and, uh, you know, call professional journalism as fake news and, you know, even terms like prostitutes have been used in India, in Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, that had already been existing when mm-hmm. Trump came to power. Okay. Mm-hmm. But Trump coming to power strengthened this entire architecture of targeting and vilifying journalists. Now, USA is a superpower and it's a big democracy, uh, a greatest democracy where freedom of speech is absolute. And this is something, you know, Democrats and liberals across the globe look up to that aspect of uh, USA. Mm. Uh, But at the same time, the conservatives, Uh, the people who want to impose autocracies or their cheerleaders, they find it inspiring when a man in position of power in USA Mm -hmm. begins to use his influence Mm -hmm. to put roadblocks in freedom of expression by challenging the integrity of journalists. And uh, I, I think what USA does has a bearing on rest of the world. Right. It makes it more legitimate for clones of Trump elsewhere in the world to emulate. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Changing gears slightly, we we at Stanford in the Center for South Asia, we are working on some events with the women from Cabrera, the journalism group on which the movie Writing with Fire was based. And um, I'm curious how for you as a journalist, um, writing with fire had what I would call the quote unquote slumdog millionaire effect. Now, all of a sudden, there's a kind of a a global awareness, um, perhaps quote unquote awareness uh, of a particular situation or a particular group of people. Uh, So I'm wondering how that affects your work and, and perhaps more importantly, the way people relate to you, because there's an idea now about what you do, but it's not it's probably not quite accurate. So how is that played out for you? Um, you know, films like uh, Writing with Fire, I, I I think it was a beautiful film. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked it and, and it reveals a lot. Um, it's uh, It creates uh, global awareness. 
But at the same time, India is a very complex country. Um, it's important to increase the awareness about what is happening in India, in which this film did. It shows how democracy is being throttled. It it brings in, uh, you know, how the socio-political fabric is being communalized and talks about the caste divisions within the society that have existed uh, much before what is happening right now. Right. Um, it, it's a story about and just, um, you know, to talk about how certain things on the margins still remain missing. Yeah. Um, it, this film tells us about the journey of um, uh, Khabar Lehria, a news organization that is uh, run by uh, only women yeah. and mostly women from um, the most uh, oppressed uh, social hierarchy within mm -hmm. India. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you need to you know, frame this within the India's very rigid caste system. Right. And... Um, and through their journey, it also brings out a nuanced understanding of what is happening socially, economically, and politically. Um, so whether it is the global audience or the local, though while the story is extremely inspiring and informative, mm -hmm. um, I was a little disappointed. As, 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 I, as I said, you know, there are certain um, margins that it completely misses. Mm -hmm. But what disappointed me was the way Kashmir uh, was brought in and was represented in this film. Um, Kashmir in the film is just simply seen as a beautiful tourist spot with houseboats and snow-clad slopes where tourists come and enjoy and it, it's it's a uh, paradise on earth. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the film shows that uh, the Khabar Lehria journalists visit Kashmir to attend some kind of a training workshop. And, and they also have their kind of relaxing moments, you know, going to all these tourist places. Mm -hmm. uh, but what it doesn't show us is the interaction between these journalists who come from the most oppressed caste hierarchy in India with another kind of oppressed people of Kashmir. Mm -hmm. There's not even a subtle hint of uh, oppression, um, uh, you know, even as the the extent of militarization of Kashmir's landscape is so noticeable. So while there are houseboats, there are ski slopes, you know, there's fun, there is tourists, uh -huh. not even in the backdrop can you see the bunkers, can you see these extra mobilization of troops that is so jarring. Yeah. And uh, that is... Uh, sometimes worrying because it tends to simplify the picture or or it tends to put you know Kashmir before the global audience in a very different light yeah of course of course and that can be very harmful I do want to add for uh, the sake of transparency I guess uh, that as far as I know the um the news organization news organization Khabar Leheria has somewhat distanced itself from the film so they're not fully on board with the film now I don't know what that was based on uh, but I feel that it's important to uh, to state that um let's talk about Stanford what what brought you to Stanford and um is there a particular project you're working on and how is it how is it for you being here um it's great it's great and, and well you have to say that but sure yeah. thank you <laughs> no it, it's great uh because it, it's a place where you know the best minds meet mm. um it's a beautiful campus mm -hmm. and uh it's particularly the fellowship for me has come at a time when i most needed it 
when you feel that there is an existential challenge, crisis uh, behind, and uh, there's a chilling effect on uh, media. And uh, this gives me the opportunity to uh, spend some time away from that atmosphere and think of uh, and work on a way forward. I imagine that, I imagine it's interesting for, for an international group of, of journalists, but then you say half of the journalists are American. I imagine some of the issues are actually remarkably similar. It's not at all that, um, you know, one group is is speaking from a place of a maybe idealized privilege and the others are kind of struggling with these internal politics. Aren't you all facing very similar issues? Yeah, I think it, at one level, these are very similar issues. But, um, you know, where I come from, even for the international uh, journalists, we all come from different areas and we are uh, facing different kinds of challenges and different kinds of situations that we come from. Um, but um, uh, I, I, I think it's, whereas for where I come from, it's more an issue of survival. Right. It's issue of basic survival and where, you know, you feel that you just probably come from the stone ages when you come from, with this kind of a problem. And here you have people talking about how to improve uh, the ways of storytelling, right. how to uh, use more of technology mm -hmm. in uh, your storytelling, how to make, uh, how to authenticate and verify information, how to do better investigative reporting. Right. Um, so for me, the challenge is how to tell a story, yeah. just a basic story and just, just hold on to it, you know, and that's Thank you. I think that is uh, that is a very important distinction. And I didn't mean to kind of flatten the landscape. So thank you for pointing that out. I think that's really important. What are you um, learning about yourself or about um, the kind of journalistic landscape that you can take back and um, and help to help you survive? I think so many ideas here. Yeah. People are doing fantastic stuff. Mm -hmm. And even even from my fellow cohorts, um, you know, both uh, the American and the international, the kind of work that they are doing. It, it, it is such a fascinating learning experience. You do, um, you know, enrich from each other's experiences and uh, the kind of work that they are doing. Yeah. It's inspiring and, and it gives uh, way to more ideas. Yeah. Um, so far, yeah, the journey has been good, and I do hope. Uh, I, I, I'm more hopeful and more optimistic now. There are ways of doing things. Um, that's we that's, just need to get the right combination, and maybe not just doing things, maybe doing it better than what we were doing before. Right. Well, I wish you well. If people want to um, find out what you're writing about or what you're doing, are there ways they can follow you online or on social media or the newspaper? What are uh, ways to connect with you? Yeah, I am on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I'm on Facebook as well, but I'm not very regular there. Okay. Uh, yeah. we will uh, we will connect to your twitter handle um thank you so much for speaking thank you today. i learned a lot and no doubt so did our audience thank you so much thank you so much pleasure talking always 
I also want to thank Soham Shiva for the music and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fair.